Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. For some reason, I've got the the Lean On Me song stuck in my head, oh. as opposed to the Stand By Me song. Like the Lean On Me when you're oh. not strong, I'll be your well, friend. Well, I think okay. I'll help you carry <laughs> on. Right. Well, now I can't even remember <laughs> the I one that this I don't is know. actually yeah. in this at movie. the very end of the movie. Because <laughs> yeah. um, I'm always thinking about the Oasis one, right? Because that's the kind of music I listen to more. <laughs> true. So, true. but I don't think. Oasis was a... And they're glimmering their father's eye at that point. (laughs) Anyway, welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. Uh, My name is Luke Mason. And I'm David Parker. And as you probably have gathered, we are doing the 1986 Rob Reiner film Stand By Me today. And Stand By Me is a great coming-of-age movie that is based on a novella by Stephen King called The Body. And as I... Did my thorough research today, which included and entirely uh, was exhausted by reading the Wikipedia article on the film. Um, the production studio didn't want to call it the body because it they thought it would make people think it was a sex movie ah, <laughs> instead of a also, coming I just of like age. The title, the body, Stand by Me, is way better. Yeah, the body makes it, it. Well, I would think it makes it sound more like a horror movie. Maybe right? Stephen King meant it to be more of a horror movie. Yeah, I never read the novella. So, <laughs> but yes, so this is a film, and it stars Will Wheaton, uh, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, and Jerry O'Connell as four. Uh, they look like they're about twelve or thirteen. I think he says at the end, uh, "You never have the same kind of friends as you do when you're twelve. So, yes, yeah, they must be. And in they their 12 range. basically go on a journey <laughs> to find a dead kid. Yeah, which they don't seem all that torn up about. It's they're actually excited about finding this dead person. There are, yeah, because it's like spawning their imagination and like, whoa, something cool to go see. It, 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 when they find the body at the end of the movie, spoilers <laughs> again. When they find the body at the end of the movie, though, there is some feeling of reverence or like a, even a little bit of shyness. Yeah, and then they I like think. cover him up with a blanket and yeah. do an anonymous call. When it becomes something. real yeah. and not just something to pursue, they have a more humanistic, I think, reaction to it. Yeah, I'd agree. And also, like, 12-year-old boys aren't known for their empathy, really. Yeah. So this is um, another experiment in the podcast in that we are doing a explicitly coming-of-age movie, and the whole point of coming-of-age movies are life insights <laughs> yeah yeah exactly. so this is we are running the risk of just <laughs> rather than having insights just repeating what happens in a movie <laughs> but so we'll try to avoid that hopefully i we do are... i do have a question for you though luke okay uh, if uh mighty mouse was fighting superman who do you who do you think would win um 
does Mighty Mouse have kryptonite? Ah, good question. See, they didn't bring that up in in their discussion of it. Well, this is what's annoying to me about Superman. I never really was too interested in Superman. I didn't really understand what the appeal of Superman was because he was undefeatable, except for kryptonite. But his weakness is external to him. Yeah, it's not inherent to his character. Or psychology. Yeah, true. And all of my favorite superheroes have internal weaknesses like uh, Batman's trauma that he experienced as a child, right? Or, I mean, Iron Man's (laughs) fear of basically everything falling away from him that he can't... And so... And he had some PTSD from that nuke, too. (laughs) Well, yeah, and yeah, a lot of different things. But then when I was Superman, and like I am not a Superman aficionado, so I don't know everything about all the comics or all the storylines about Superman, but... He's just kind of boring and almost too good. And, uh, you know, I guess it, it makes sense. He's created in the era where they wanted that kind of <laughs> this form of an American hero who's, even though he's from another place, he's got a full head of hair and he's upright and he's got those Midwest values and he stands up for uh, the good thing with the stiff upper lip at any given moment. And he seems to do his job best if he talks least yep, <laughs> kind true, of thing. And true. so I think Superman would win, but, you know, like, who gives a shit about Superman? I know. Mighty Mouse is a more inspiring character in my mind. Oh, yeah? Why is that? I don't know. Well, growing up, my dad would always say, Mighty, Mighty, Mighty Mouse. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'd, oh, okay. So Mighty Mouse <laughs> is inspiring because your dad used it as a <laughs> yeah. funny way to get your attention. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The boys did not bring that up in their conversation. <laughs> uh, no, they did not. I forgot about that. But oh uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree with your your commentary on Superman. Though I <laughs> thinking about those discussions that you have when you're a kid, sure. Like yes. where you're, you're seriously like, my dad could beat up your dad, or or you know, <laughs> is Goofy a dog? How does he drive a car and have a hat? Like. There's the, now that I, that is a question for the ages because I don't know what goofy like goofy should be a dog like there's no other animal that goofy looks more like well he's got like dog. a snout like a dog yeah but Pluto is a dog and Pluto has none of the anthropomorphic characteristics that goofy does right true and Pluto acts like a dog yeah he and he walks is, on all fours he is goofy's dog yeah is he I thought he was Mickey's well, oh. oh yeah well we'll get <laughs> it's the Good internet point. we'll get fact checked. <laughs> Um, My memory is much more that he was Mickey's dog. I think you're right. But then I also remember seeing cartoon panels of him just on his own. And he's kind of with Goofy sometimes, I feel like. I suppose so. So yeah, what is Goofy? Who knows, right? (laughs) I I think that was one of my favorite lines in the movie. It's like, they discussed about all the things that seemed very important. We we discussed all the things Mm. that seemed very important to boys before they were interested in girls. So those four, Will Wheaton plays Gordy. River Phoenix plays Chris. Corey Feldman plays Theodore or Teddy, as he's more known throughout the movie. And Jerry O'Connell plays Vern. Uh, and also an awesome role by Kiefer Sutherland in this movie as Ace, the the head bully. Right? True. He, he can't does have yeah, a coming very of age. Good job. Yeah. You cannot have a coming in age without a bully. <laughs> that's no, just, no. That's that a work. growing up one hundred and one. And he's so good. Like I, and he's not even in that a ton. But the scenes he's in, he's just like whoa. Well, he's like the, like he's in it more than any of the parents or anything like that. It's kind mm. of like the only characters are the four boys, and then 
we have this other group of there's older a bully boys. gang there's a bully gang yeah, yeah. well and, and a lot of them seem to be older brothers of the of the guys or cousins in, or yeah yeah and then there's also John Cusack who plays Gordy's older brother in flashbacks because well we'll give a little plot rundown Gordy and his three friends we there's like a, a few scenes at the beginning where we see them establishing the relationship in a treehouse etc and this movie is set in the 1950s and it definitely has that 50s feel to oh, it oh yeah for it's sure. so great there's also so they um Vern, who's played by jerry o'connell which he turns into a total hunk <laughs> He he plays um, Sydney's boyfriend in Scream Two, and I had to double check on IMDb that it was the same guy because in Stand by Me he's like short and pudgy and uh, overweight and kind of a like he seems like a kid that would very easily get picked on, right? And in Scream Two he's just like muscly and hunkish, and you just he's got blue eyes you'll just go drown in. They're so deep and beautiful, you know. And it's like that is the that's Vern, you know. Some some people glow a, up. Is that what they calling it these days? What glowing a, up? What? <laughs> I don't know. That sounds like something I would know nothing about. But he had quite the metamorphosis. Yes. And so Vern hears about this dead body out out of the city, and it's set in Oregon. So these four boys go on a trip. They all lie to their own parents, saying they're all staying at someone else's house. And uh, as they go along, they have great conversations and adventures and mishaps, etc. And then that's actually most of the movie, is them just traveling to go find this dead body. And then they do find it at the end. They have a couple confrontations with this bully group led by Kiefer Sutherland. And there are some great friendship resolutions that then both the beginning and the end of the movie there's a grown-up Gordy uh, played by Richard Dreyfus, I believe who is uh, noticing that Chris River Phoenix character in the newspaper has been murdered and so that was a I guess him writing it down right I say with it air quotes well there is the uh, the moment where Chris says to Gordy in the movie um, you know you're gonna be a great writer one day and maybe, you know, if you run low on material, you could write about us. Oh, yes. And, and then, I, so I think that kind of, he remembered that. And, right. And then when he sees... Because at the very beginning of the movie, he sees the newspaper article about Chris Chambers having been killed. And yes. they're adults now. And so he remembers this scenario from when they were 12. In, I think it was 1959, this movie is set. They talk a lot about storming the beach in Normandy, so must have been... In the fifties, Ye- yeah. Wikipedia said nineteen fifty nine, so well, I'm we'll pretty... go with Wikipedia then. But this is also one of the first ever uh, movies that I can remember with Will Wheaton, who is Wesley from Star Trek. After this movie and probably a few others, he gained popular knowledge and acclaim on Star Trek. So he's kind of a he. Will Wheaton, the actor, has a kind of cult from the nerds the nerds right, because and the geeks of star lo- trek because yeah. of star trek so probably there's also like a retrospective popularity of this movie too because of him his later fame in star trek and then oh will wheaton was in this although apparently this movie had a lot of critical acclaim upon release which is makes sense it's such a great movie well, and it really pulls at your heartstrings and i mean it is a great coming of age story in the sense that i think 
everyone's kind of experienced having a little gang of friends like that that yeah so before we dive into any of the characters specifically because there's some great these four boys are so great to talk about what what are some of your like thoughts about the movie aesthetically and just kind of the setting and how they told the story i just uh i found it just really nostalgic and kind of and beautiful in that nostalgic sort of way thinking about growing up and running around in the forest i remember at one point we found like a dead dog or something in the forest beautiful (laughs) yes just you know friendships and and how the nostalgia i think is how much time you have back then to just go and do these things like i think one of the scenes that really captured me was when they're sitting in the dump not doing anything uh, and just having fun and playing around and and Ah, I miss that. There's a carefree air to that whole scene that you're just like, and they don't seem worried and they're not rushed to accomplish this task that they set out to do. They're, they're just being boys. Yeah. They're not rushed until the junk yes. man shows up. Yeah, he, tells them he shows up and then they're very worried. That, yes. But even that scene, it's such a great portrayal of the young person's mind and how it kind of just fears has like a weird relationship with the stranger, right? So this strange man who they've like heard some rumors about, but they don't know him really. And uh, how it's just kind of like what the things that they've made up in their head about him are way more real than anything about him. <laughs> well, that's the beautiful part too, where, right? Where he's running away and he says, that was the moment I realized that myth and reality often don't align because yes. the dog's like some, I think it's a, well, it's not a big yeah because the, 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 the junk the junkyard owner's a dog collie or something yeah is rumor has it that it's this massive dog that will I can't remember exactly the phrase they use in the movie but sick sick his balls or sick sick their balls yes exactly yeah. oh yes that is a fun <laughs> aside there is a lot of um, colorful language in this movie. <laughs> I forgot <laughs> how much of it there was and it was like it's just so funny uh, hearing twelve year old actors. Uh, <laughs> saying all these nasty things swear all the time making your mom jokes yeah <laughs> it was uh it was actually really refreshing it gave me hope for the young people of the 50s <laughs> retroactive hope eh? yes retroactive hope oh, no. that would be a good uh album title i would yeah or um title of your sex tape <laughs> Hmm. Andy Samberg, <laughs> pay heed. I do. I do implore you. Uh, yeah. So there's so many great scenes. I think like my just my general thoughts about this movie is that because most of the setting of this movie is at least it's like the Oregon backcountry, right? Because they're they well, live the in Oregon. The town's like 1,200 people or yep. something. Yeah. And then most of the movies, them actually journey journeying to where allegedly this dead body is i found out reading that actually a good amount of the scenes were actually filmed in california but a lot of the look of i mean obviously they're right beside each other so it looks and so there's just so much uh, natural beauty that is the backdrop to so much of this movie and i think that that more than anything dovetails the themes of the movie so nice because of how these boys are adventuring together and the silent character in any reality fiction is just like the forest or water the creek a river back roads train track well yeah obviously the train not 
a piece of nature, but being in the middle of nowhere in the train and the train scene, which is so, it's just, it's so, it's a little bit cheesy, but it's still so kind of weirdly exciting when they're running away from the train on the trestle. You know, it's like, what do you think's going to happen? You know, it's also like, it made me think, because they talk about trains earlier in the movie. I'm like, oh, this is this is Chekhov's train, <laughs> right? You don't bring yeah. up a train in the first act of the no. movie, <laughs> and then not have, <laughs> and then well, not... they think he probably that the the Ryan Brown or whatever died on, from the train too, right? This is who's Ryan Brown, the dead boy, the oh, dead body. Ryan or Ray? I thought his name was Ray. I thought it was Ryan, but one of us is right, or none <laughs> or of us, us is, is right. Is <laughs> <laughs> There's one option. I, I think, but like running from like a life and death scenario like that um, when you're young, because you make foolish decisions that could that could result in bad things. Yeah. Like, so in this scene, we're talking about they're they're crossing a train trestle over, and it's it's got to be like a 500 foot fall. It looks like into uh, the water below. So probably like definitely, if you fall, you're dead. And as they're on the trestle. A train comes along, of course. What, like, what do you? That's, that's movie one hundred and one movie. <laughs> we understand that that's going to happen, and um, I, I think it's Gordy and Vernarily make it. Yeah, right. Uh, Chris and um, and Teddy, Teddy are, are further ahead. But I'm, um, yeah, I, I I see what you mean by cheesy, but I think I think it played. But it, well. but it wasn't cheesy. It's I don't know. It's like a category of cheesy that still is really emotionally fulfilling it's kind of they're flirting with cliches and movies and tropes for sure but the sincerity of the four boys and their humor and their kind of unadulterated way of talking with each other that is indicative of actually how 12 year old and 13 year old boys do talk to each other there isn't a kind of sanitization of their language with each other so it because the relationships between the boys, I guess this is what I'm just realizing, the relationships between the boys seem so authentic and kind of how I remember being 12 that the the tropiness of the movie is easy to just look over because that's even though it's there, it's not the point. And it's really a testament to the acting, right? Like this is good acting by for these, yeah. these characters. Like they make for you young feel, boys. Yeah, for young boys, it makes you they make you feel like you are. And maybe they were just being authentic themselves, right? Like, well, that's what I, actually I read <clears throat> on the Wikipedia article that Rob Reiner had them actually hang out together for a long time before the movie. So that a lot of the scenes in the movie are actually just single takes because they nailed it the first time because they'd already had um, developed so much camaraderie with each other. And there were a few quotes in it too about how they cast people who were actually kind of dealing with things in their real lives that the characters were dealing with in Oh really? In the movie, yeah. No, so, I didn't know that. So that co- makes sense. Yeah. Both Corey Feldman and River Phoenix were having tumultuous home lives in their real life and so that translates into the characters of teddy and chris quite well because both of them have difficult home lives so anyway gordy gordy's the main character gordy lachance he's He's a narrator too yeah apparently this is the story he's telling to us even though it's you know originally stephen king doesn't matter (laughs) (laughs) and so he is the kind of backdrop to Gordy that's super important for the whole movie is that he's actually dealing with a tragedy in his own life as the movie begins. Because recently, I don't remember if they actually say how recently. Been like six months or six something. Six months. Um, his older brother, 
Dennis or Denny, who is played by John Cusack in the flashbacks, was killed in a car accident. The Jeep rollover or something. Right. But yeah. Yeah. Car um, so it looks like like he's 12 in the movie. It looks like Dennis is 17 or something like that. So he's like five years older than Gordy. And in all of the flashback scenes, Dennis is really kind to Gordy, right? Like he's encouraging Gordy a lot. He asks because Gordy likes to write stories. So he's always asking Gordy about his stories and wants to read them. And in the present day, Gordy is dealing with, at best, bitter indifference from his parents because his parents are so deep in grief over having lost Dennis in this car accident that Gordy is feeling alienated, alone, can't talk to his parents. And this is kind of setting the stage for Gordy's presence in this movie. And I think we also uh, get the impression that Gordy's dad didn't like him to begin with nearly as much as Dennis. Because Dennis was an athlete. Yeah, and he was proud of, or Gordy's dad was proud of Dennis. And, like, there's some some deep emotional pain that Gordy's going through throughout this movie in feeling like he should be the one that died. And this is a common among people who are going through grief, but it's kind of mind-blowing that... Uh, that a parent would treat their child that way. Yeah, there are some moments of very, you can just see it in Gordy, both in kind of the way he talks and his disposition, that he's he's feeling some really deep pain. And he feels very cut by both losing his brother, which, again, we see it, it appears to be the only person in his family that gives a shit about him. And the way that his dad, especially his mom, a little bit, his mom's a little bit more indifferent, I think, or just ignores Gordy. But his dad does have a lot more hostility towards Gordy. And I can't remember if he actually says. I don't think he actually does say it. I wish it was you instead of Dennis, but it's heavily implied. And so Gordy is dealing with this tragedy, which I guess I would say to any listener who has dealt with a tragedy like losing an immediate family member so that's happening to him and then on top of that the other members of his immediate family are not caring about him and they're just so what would you say they're so so they're so involved with their own grief that self-absorbed with their own grief really i guess that they all they can do is treat gordy with spite or ignore him and so, like, I don't know, like, I just, if this is something that's happening to you, imagine dealing with that loss and then everyone else, are, the, the closest people in your family still being spiteful to you because, in a way, you just remind them of what they've lost as opposed to what they still have. Well, and Jordan Peterson talks about this, right, is it's the idea that no matter how bad things are, some sucker, like, you can come along and make them 10 times worse, right? And this is a great example of that. Like, obviously, Gordy loves his brother and they love their son, but they're making the situation even more hellish and awful for their their remaining son because they're not dealing with the suffering properly. Yeah, it feels like in a really fucked up way, they almost wish that Gordy was dead too. Yeah. <laughs> that, like, they'd rather have two sons or zero sons, not just Gordy still. Or it's like they don't even want Gordy. Like, and, and it, when you watch the... Like, he asks his dad to pass the potatoes, but his dad's ignoring him because he's just paying attention to Dennis. And 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 the weird part is he's also constantly gets brought up as Dennis's brother when he's meeting other people. Right. 
So through his parents, his identity is Dennis's brother, not Gordy. Yeah, exactly. Which I is just. I mean, I don't know. Gordy's have... twelve. Yeah, he's not gonna so understand this is... that. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's got that cognitive capacity of a twelve-year-old. Like, I can't imagine who that wouldn't fuck up. <laughs> you know, and I actually, I actually love because I mean, there's a few moments where you see like just a portrayal of really great friendship. But I love when Chris is sitting there with him and he's like, "My dad doesn't want me." Like he, and he says he doesn't know you, and he just keeps saying he doesn't know you, and like that is, oh man, it just. It really gets you at the core of your being when you have someone that loves you that much, as much as Chris Chris loves Gordy in this moment. Yeah. And he says, he doesn't know you. Well, I would say that that is kind of the, well, Gordy's relationship with Chris is probably the inspiration for the title of the movie, Stand By Me, because Chris and Gordy stand by each other. They're best friends, and they stand by each other the whole movie at different meaningful times for each other and it's kind of the thing that actually by the end of the movie you realize what keeps Gordy afloat is Chris and Chris's friendship but with the tragedy that Gordy and especially because Dennis again is the only person who seen and because Gordy likes to write stories this is really important to him and Dennis is the only person who appears to care about that in his family all of the scenes the, the flashback scenes, Dennis is being the best version of a big brother to Gordy. He's like encouraging him and telling him to keep trying, even if it doesn't go well. And that no matter what happens, he's got his back kind of thing. It's kind of like probably the sibling relationship that parents would dream of. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, like the, yeah, that's true. to have an older sibling looking out for a younger sibling in that manner. And so Gordy's had like his whole world collapse because not only did he lose his brother who is his closest person but his brother was also a kind of the shield between him and the bitterness of his parents and now without that shield and without that friendship uh, there's like a destituteness to Gordy that he can't really articulate and I just was so like obviously this is the edge case or the extreme case of like total <laughs> bereftment of a person in tragedy where <laughs> you lose the closest person and the other closest people just <laughs> turn on you sh- yeah. shit on you yeah. basically uh, and so i wanted to express how crucial it seems to me to be not adding to people's tragedies especially if you're a very close person to them. You know, and I, I think I think there's a lot of pain that, like, and Gordy's parents could easily make all these rationalizations about how they how they sincerely miss Dennis, which I believe, right? Like, it's, it's very clear that both his parents loved Dennis very much. But it's a dereliction of parenthood to let that prevent you from still loving like gordy's still here <laughs> right yeah gordy's still around he still needs parents he's 12 he needs his parents obviously and i it just it broke my heart <laughs> to see that to someone who'd experienced tragedy like that and it's so sad too because it's his parents are so hurting as well yeah it's one of those tragedies of life in in that when we don't deal with tragedy well we compound 
the negative impact of it on both ourselves and those around us. But and it's so hard not to just feel raw and in pain during those times when someone really close to you dies. Yeah, but his dad is mean to Gordy. He's not just like go away. He like no, he's actively trying. He to... rips into him for not being Dennis. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, we we could probably go into a whole psychological analysis of what's wrong with his dad. Like mm-hmm. the things that his dad seems to care about and be proud of don't seem to be even the things Dennis is proud of about himself. Yeah, right. And so even in his love for Dennis, it's not it's not even a love of the person. It's a love of how what how that person makes them look. Or right. feel right, and I think it's kind of Dennis's accolades. Yeah, well, it, like he's that he's so proud like of a great quarterback, apparently, right? And so his dad's status in the town, and you can already tell that, like when when he's in the store buying the the food and and stuff for the trip, uh, the they're like, oh man, I remember watching him in that football game, right? Even now, people are remembering Dennis as like kind of a star of their town, and. And yet Gordy knows him as his closest person. Exactly, exactly. And I find that this happens a lot in movies. I haven't experienced it quite nearly as much in life, where where a dad puts, particularly a dad, but a mom as well, will put their value on their child's successes and the status that those successes bring. But I mean... How often do parents tie their identity to their children, right? I mean... Yeah, that comment reminds me of the the line from The Simpsons where Homer says, having kids is great because you can teach them to hate what you hate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, when, yeah. or love what you love, right? Uh, well, yeah, there's definitely a, um, what would you call it, like a vicarious living that I've seen a lot parents do through kids, especially because I grew up playing competitive sports, hockey and soccer. And this wasn't the norm, but there's like basic. There's probably two or three guys on every team I played on, whose parents were so hard on them. If they did 99 things right in a game, they'd focus on the one thing they did wrong, and berate them for that. And nothing was good enough, and it was always you're making yourself look foolish out there. And I would guess if you started to peel away the layers of those parents, there's a kind of a, perhaps a life passed me by type thing, but I can still catch the back of the train with my last jump if I get it through this kid. Yeah. Oh, man. Which is not treating your child. That's just not treating a person as their own unique autonomous soul but just something else for you to manipulate and actually i think this is is getting better than it used to be like i think a lot of human history is like you're my my child you're gonna do these things you're locked into this career because this is what i do but there is a toxic uh, codependency that can occur between parents and children and I've seen this in in some of my friends lives where they won't even realize that that, that, that what they're doing is so negative to the child but let's take for example they will not be there for them or encourage them until they're in a time of crisis and then they'll swoop in and try to fix everything and the point of that being you can't get by without me you need me to fix your things and they get their identity out of 
you know, oh, it's okay, I can fix this crisis, or I'll get you this job, or, and it's so negative in terms of the self-worth that the individuals are doing this to, but we're talking like 30, 32-year-olds at this point, right? Yeah, and there's an element in the way that Gordy's dad is talking to him where it's heavily implied that, hey, kid, you need me, so be better. Yeah, be, be why, more why, Dennis. Why, why are your friends not like Dennis? As friends? if Gordy doesn't know he still needs his parents, right? Like twelve-year-olds don't know much, but they know that. Oh man, I remember being <laughs> a kid and just being terrified that something would happen to my parents because I knew I needed them so much. Right, and so what's poor Gordy to do? <laughs> like he's is is this this? It's like a no-win situation. And I guess to put a bow on the thought, it's Gordy's still here, and in those well, moments of death, you do have to remember that there's still people alive who need you, you know? And it feels like Gordy's parents just somehow don't know that. And it's so hard for him. Yeah. So anyway, that's uh, this is the water <laughs> Gordy is swimming in for this movie. Before we move on to Chris... Uh, there's there's one just awesome scene in the movie that I wanted to talk to you a little about, and it's the scene with the deer. So there's this scene, they're out in the forest, they're like on their second or their third day on their trip to go find this dead body, and Gordy is up first, it's like super early morning, it's probably like 6, six or 6.30 in the morning, So, but it's summer I think, so the sun's already up, and um, he's just kind of sitting by himself reading or something and he hears like a crack and he looks up and there's just a deer probably about 20 feet away from him just looking at him in the narration of the movie he says i never told anyone about that deer not until today so that feeling is it's just gordy with this you know beautiful animal right in front of him and so it made me just kind of contemplate this idea of um, the little things in life that kind of make up the glue of living and become your memories but what's a memory do you have a memory like that probably (laughs) um because i wasn't like i'm not actually thinking about directly about memories although that's definitely a huge component of it i guess everything they all become memories yeah i mean my memories would be things like stopping at the candy store on the way to my paper route right because i had a little extra change that day and i could afford some candy and that was exciting because I didn't always have a little extra change to afford candy, right? <laughs> yeah. Or bike rides. But so it, it reminded me of another Kurt Vonnegut quote where maybe I mentioned it before. It's just so good where he writes, pay attention to the little things in life because when you're old, you'll realize they were the big things. And there's also this kind of idea in the movie Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell. It's like, well, actually, at least in the movie Stranger Than Fiction, it's like, turns out life is made out of cool things like Stratocaster guitars and picnics on Sunday and petting a dog or petting a cat kind of thing. And for Gordy, he's just looking up and there's it, the deer's only there for about 10 seconds and they look at each other and they just kind of have like, I guess for lack of a term, they have a moment. Gordy never says he never tells anyone about this. He's just by himself in nature and it's just beautiful. It's like... You wouldn't put that in the movie unless it kind of spoke to an audience that's probably it's like borderline spiritual level of just me and nature. 
face to face. I don't even need to tell anyone about it because it's just so meaningful to my soul. Yeah. You know? And that commuting, the commuting with nature sort of idea, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that moment is kind of a reflection remembering to live. Right, because one of the things that happens in this movie is you're you're constantly thinking about the future or the past, and and if you look at Stand by Me, it is really a portrait of that. So Gordy's stuck in the past; his brother died, and I mean, rightly so, he's stuck in the past. But it's harder for him. You even see it. There are moments where he can't experience the joy of the moment because he's thinking about his brother or like when his hat gets taken, it's so obvious that that's really traumatic, but he doesn't even say anything to anyone. Like when I was rewatching it, cause I'd forgotten that he, he never mentions the hat again, but this is the hat his brother gave him yeah, and is now taken from him. Uh, so he's in the past, but then you look at Chris and he's stuck in the future and fear of the future. And he's like, Gordy, we're not even going to be friends anymore because I'm not smart. And my family kind of, has a bad reputation and everyone thinks I'm awful and I'm never going to succeed. And I'm just going to be a deadbeat wise guy. So he's, he's thinking about the future and it's ripping him apart, but also he's got that past situation with his teacher and the, and the milk money. Right. And to me, it's, it's almost this Buddhist Zen concept of present and like always living in the present and that focus on anything else doesn't make any sense and we so rarely break through to that moment in life and the 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 reason that the deer thing is important i think is it's him breaking through yeah that's true yeah and and that moment he's been so stuck yeah and that moment sticks with him the entire his entire life because it was actually a moment where he appreciated the moment Mm -hmm. yeah and i think it's no mistake in the writer that it's a like a nature yeah. right like it's yeah. like an animal that's this beautiful deer um if you've ever seen a deer up close it's just got those eyes and that it just kind of looks curious it's like ready to run but somehow like in the deer in the movie like it it knows gordy's not a predator but it's still like alert. It's ready, but it's still like searching you. I don't know. There's just something that feels so authentic about that connection to like an animal, I guess. And so I, I like, I like all of that kind of connection to being present and having these things that it, it kind of makes it, it seems like it's the moment where Gordy becomes aware, at least when he's telling the story later in his life, it's, it's that moment where he realized that maybe there's like life beyond Dennis, you know, where he can still have a beautiful moment. Like that hasn't been destroyed for him. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very uh, cathartic healing moment probably. Mm -hmm. And equally cathartic is the moment where he kind of breaks down about his brother and then Chris is there. Right. And is talking to him. Yeah, that's a good segue to Chris, because yes. he's the other main character in this movie, uh, River Phoenix, tragically lost, much too young, mm-hmm. <laughs> great actor. Mm-hmm. But his character is that he also, like you mentioned, he comes from a tough home. His parents 
fight. I think is it like his dad's an alcoholic. Does he talk? Well, about he that? talks about his dad's been drinking more lately and is a lot angrier. Okay. Right. So I like the worst parents, obviously Teddy's dad. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's got weird fucked up reasons for that too, though. But we'll get to that. Even if Chris's dad is an alcoholic, he's drinking too much, yeah. and he often takes it out on Chris. And uh, does Chris have his siblings? I can't remember. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. I think the overarching thing I like so much about the way Chris is, is, well, the way he is with Gordy. And there's a line in the movie where Gordy's, I think he's talking about his stories or something. He says, oh, they're just weird. And Chris says, yeah, but so what? Everyone's weird. (laughs) Yeah. No, he's talking about himself. He asks Chris, am I weird? Oh, am I weird? And Chris says, yes. And kind of that way that a... A yeah. friend or a buddy would. Yeah, of course you're weird. So he admits to the truth, but takes the teeth out of it because of perspective. So as opposed to, like, you can always just kind of tell when someone is trying to just placate you or maybe just settle you or something. So Gordy says, am I weird? Chris says, no, 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 you're not weird, Gordy. Come on. No. You're not weird. Like, yeah. that's not going to fly because Gordy's a smart kid and he can, he's intuitive and and I like this, I like. I guess I like the idea of telling someone a truth that is at least on the surface unflattering, but then saying, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You, the, the fact that it's true, the only problem with the truth is that you think it's a problem. Right. Right? Yeah. Like Chris is saying. I like that, I, that, that phrase you use, taking the teeth out of it, but with perspective. Because of perspective, yes. right? Yeah. Where Chris is like, yeah, you're weird. <laughs> like, you draw weird pictures. You write weird stories. Other kids don't really know what to do with that because other kids want to play baseball or, or, yeah, or, or football whatever, yeah. or whatever, right? And yet you do these kind of idiosyncratic things. So that's a little bit weird. But you know what, bud? You dig deep enough under anybody's skin. They're we- Everyone's weird. So whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and... That is so much better, I think, than placation. Oh, don't worry, man. It's the world. They just don't understand you. You're not weird. You know. Yeah. it's, it's That's not a good way to be a friend. Well, like, because you're lying in a sense, right? I mean, if, if I mean, like you said, dig deep enough under, under anyone's skin and they're weird. In fact, I would argue it is the weirdness in people, the, the idiosyncrasies that those unique things that you can get to know that really can build a friendship. And I think one of my favorite things about Chris is that he admires Gordy. Like he yeah. sees that weirdness and he's like, this is awesome. He loves, he the sees weirdness. the potential. Yeah. He sees the potential, but also loves the present. Like I love that line where he's like, if I was your dad, you wouldn't be, be allowed to th- even think about not going to college. Right. Yeah. Cause, Cause, Cause you're I, so smart. Cause you're so smart. Yeah. yeah. That's so true because that's something I think probably the deepest part of this movie that I noticed or the part of this movie that struck me is like, oh my God, they nailed that in terms of friendship is that he doesn't just encourage Gordy, but he encourages Gordy at what he loves and what he's good at. So he believes in him and pushes Gordy even when Gordy's moping, right? There's a lot of moping going on from Gordy in this movie. And it's it's just a great way to show someone you love them is that Chris doesn't just try and cheer Gordy up. He says, dude, you write incredible stories. And I want, and, and then there's that scene when it's one of the nights they're camping out and Chris 
basically makes Gordy tell the story that he's been working on, which is the barf scene. Yeah. <laughs> and the kid, it was just so funny. Ugh, like, I have, if uh... you've ever seen Stand By Me, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I, I find the the barf scene hard to take personally. I don't sure, know yes. Why. <laughs> Maybe but I have a weak stomach. <laughs> either way, it's not like Chris is saying, Gordy, it's good. You're just, you'll be fine because you're just really nice. Or, yeah, Gordy, I like you. <laughs> Let's uh, just feel better. No, like Chris is pushing Gordy on the topics that he knows Gordy wants to be most pushed at because it's actually like Gordy loves writing stories. He's very imaginative and creative. This is what he wants. And Chris is such a good friend that he pays attention to all of the weirdness of Gordy, but all of the things about Gordy, he pays attention to what Gordy pays attention to, right? Yeah. And in moments of need, when Gordy has need, he brings that back up, right? Yeah. So he doesn't bring up the, well, at least your dad doesn't hit you, right? Or like, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah, he, he doesn't it's not say, about him. It's yeah, about his friend. It's about his friend. And it's not like, well, why don't you try to play? But like, why don't you try to be less weird? Yeah. 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 It's, it's all just, don't you dare give up on your stories because you love them and you'll let yourself down. And in front of Teddy and Vern, it's like Chris is bragging about Gordy's stories. So obviously they're all friends, so it's not like it's a crowd. But in in front of other people, Chris is still trumpeting Gordy's favorite thing about himself as something he loves about Gordy. That's a really good point. And that's... That's That's friendship. So of all of the things that Chris could say an encouragement. He picks the thing that's actually the most meaningful because it's the thing that Gordy, if he reflects on it, realizes, oh, Chris really pays attention to me. He's not just, just around. Just like Dennis did. Dennis cared about his exactly. stories too. Yeah. And actually, but, uh, and I will say this, I also love, and I don't know if this is, uh, it's something I love about friendship, the constant ribbing. Like well, of course. Like, like they are boys. There's a there's a level of I don't know if it's male or friendship or what it is, but where you could just go at each other in a good-hearted manner. And I guess it's not always good-hearted when you're younger because you're you're probably you're, more you're fragile. Doing a little boundary testing too. Yeah, like there's that moment where Teddy's like going to dodge the train, and then they get in this fight. And I I mean I think we've all been in moments like that where like you're just feeling. Where you're just feeling crazy, and and then you you just get angry, and you're full of these emotions. I remember growing up, and you just get in a fight with your best friend or whatever, and it was just awful over like, some stupid thing. All you wanted to do was touch skin, you know, make make good, but also that they're constantly there's that moment that was just name of your first sex tape, <laughs> where <laughs> where Chris is comforting Gordy, right? And one of the things he says is, you know, maybe when you run out of material or when you're low on material, you could write about us. And kind of in that, and it's just such good acting. In that moment, he kind of gets a grin on his face. He's like, I guess I'd have to be really low on material for that. Yeah. Well, I think this, yeah, that's so, <laughs> yeah, like that's such a good burn. <laughs> yeah. But also realizing the goodness in the offer, too, because obviously it's banter. And banter is not mean spirited, and it's a, betrays an underlie of care. Uh, but I think what like what Chris is doing in this movie, I think, is the psychological underpinning for why we we want to 
give gifts like when you you want to give a gift to someone that's meaningful and that very rarely is the gift that costs the most money i would say it's the gift that is most idiosyncratically individualized to the person you're giving it to right and that can be it based on what they like right so <laughs> i think obviously a lot of the gifts i get are <laughs> star wars related or books yeah or books it's not it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand what kind of gift I want. But like some people aren't as, they're not as much of an open book as someone like I am. And it would take a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of relationship building to understand what kind of gift would be the best um, suited to that person's deep wants and desires about their own life and what they find meaningful. Maybe it is a homemade birdhouse, right? Because they love feeding birds or a bird feeder you know or just any any kind of object or thought or writing a letter even maybe people just want to read a nice sentiment and so like for example i could get uh, something that cost a thousand dollars even if it's like something i'm not interested in at all i'm just like well yeah i'd rather yeah i'd rather like it's you don't want to spurn a gift, but you also are like, well, I feel like you're just kind of trying to go through the pleasantries. Whereas all Chris does, almost this whole movie, is give give Gordy the gifts that Gordy that matter to Gordy that matter to Gordy. Right? It's interesting if I think about Gordy. One of the things I didn't like about the end of the movie is he's like, well, I haven't talked to him in ten years, and then I guess in our modern context, that's not really going to happen. If you think of someone. You can reach out to them almost instantaneously through social media or hopefully you saw their phone number or maybe their email. So A, he let that friendship go. But also, is Gordy a good friend to Chris? I guess he stands by him in like a moment of... Well, the climax of the movie is Gordy saving Chris from Kiefer Sutherland or Ace. With Do you think the, he would have actually gun? killed him in that, uh, in that moment? Yeah. 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 That was the impression I got is that Gordy was ready to shoot Ace. No, no, I meant what Ace would would kill Chris with a knife. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. Hmm. This is like every scene with Ace in the whole movie makes him seem like he's a little bit of a psychopath. True, like he's <laughs> when he's driving down the road straight towards that logging truck and makes the logging truck swerve out of the way. Yeah. Like the danger yeah. that he so has no problem putting other people in make me think, yeah, he'll gut Chris. The end of the movie is there's like a standoff between because I think Ace wants to take the body and like be the ones who found him kind of thing. Whereas Gordy and Chris say, no, we found him. We're going to claim it (laughs) basically. And Kiefer Sutherland is ready to, I would say, kill Chris who's standing in the way. And Gordy pulls a gun on Ace and says, hey, you are the one who's leaving, not us. And well, and Teddy and um, Vern run away, right? They abandon Chris, but Chris just this means so much to Chris for some reason to to be the one to find it and to be the one to deal with it. Yeah, and and weirdly though, Gordy is kind of the leader of the group, even though he says Chris is the leader of the group. Like Gordy's the one who says, "No, this is what we're going to do with the body." Yeah, I think it's probably because Gordy's the smartest. Right. I think yeah. Gordy is able to have the most creativity of any given situation. So he's gonna Gordy has the most ideas. He's the idea man of the group, right? So he's going to be able to think up more scenarios of how they're going to deal with things. And eventually, like that that just <laughs> takes cognitive load off of the other three. And so they're just willing to 
Yeah, to let him do to that. To let him yeah. do that. But but going back to it, is Gordy a good friend to Chris? And just in that moment he is. I think the movie is set up so that it's a moment in time where Gordy needs a friend more than Chris does. Not to say Chris doesn't need a friend, but the trauma that Gordy happens to be going through, at least the way it's painted through the narrative, makes it so that Gordy is the one who needs the support more than Chris does. So I don't think we have been given enough data or information to know what kind of friend Gordy would be to Chris if, if roles were reversed. My thought says probably... Well, and probably Chris wouldn't feel that positively about Gordy if he wasn't a good friend. Yeah. Like, why Why guess. is Chris doing all these things for Gordy for just a dude? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. So that's my suspicion. But yeah, just I love the thought of being what your friend needs you to be in the way that is actually the best and most mean, not best, like most meaningful for them. Uh, do you have any other thoughts about Chris? I think about the that moment. Actually, I really like Chris just as a a character, and there's cliches around you know rising up from the the lower classes to become something. But I think there's a reason those stories are so impactful to us because it goes back to the eulogy versus resume virtues. And for me, Chris has grit, right? He's got that that strength to to press through. He stands up to the bullies. He's got a strength, internal internal strength that we see even in how he dies, although we don't see it on screen. But like he's trying to make peace between these two guys, despite the one guy having a knife. Uh, yeah, he's trying to mediate a conflict. Yeah, in that's happening. A restaurant in a, in a, or something. Yeah, like I think a fast food place or something. And I I like how at the end of the movie, it's like Chris Chris has been saying he couldn't do these things, but when push came to shove, he went through it, went to college, became a lawyer. Uh, and you know, whatever may, people may think of lawyers, it takes a lot of work to become one. And he didn't even think he had the intelligence to do it. But what I wanted to say is, there's I think the reason he became a lawyer and why this is really well crafted storytelling is there's that moment with the teacher who he gives the money back to, but she never returns it. And what she and and then she arrives later with a with a new purse or something. And he just feels so betrayed by authorities in his life. He he's like, I never would have expected a teacher to do this to me. Like, and he and he feels like there's an injustice has been done, and an injustice on top of the fact that he feels that he, there's injustice done to him based on his background and his family being kind of seen as deadbeats and losers. And I think it just i love how they take that and they're like and then he became a lawyer like because then he became concerned with justice then he mm-hmm. became concerned with protecting people against authority like which is what the purpose of the rule of law is yeah which and and so then like in that specific scenario he is using that bad thing that happened that unjust unjust thing that happened to motivate him to cover that base later for someone else yeah exactly as opposed to living in resentment from it and and having resentment corrode his perspective of the world right or jade him kind of like well no i'll become part of the machinery against that kind of thing 
Yeah, and the, like there's so often we encounter these decisions, right? It's a, how are you? It, it goes back to uh, Gordy's parents too. How are you going to deal with the tragedies and injustices of life? Like, and your reaction to that is really all that matters. Are you going to curl up and be spiteful, or are you going to love fight, people, love people, and fight it, or, and or and fight the injustice? Keep exactly. working for better days. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's so great. In no hidden way chris is the samwise to gordy's frodo oh yeah yeah <laughs> this movie. like if we're That's talking about archetypes for yeah. sure like, yeah 100 percent. Right. Like, it's a plucked right from the tree <laughs> yeah okay teddy teddy is probably the third most main character in this movie i think he's got the most presence other than gordy and it's Corey feldman's character in this is a very troubled boy. <laughs> yeah, and rightly so. Like. I have a, the majority, like obviously a lot of my sympathy goes to Gordy, but I think I even have more sympathy for Teddy than I do oh, for Gordy. And just, there's a special place in hell for people who violate a child's innocence. Right. And and, and create in them a, a sense of dread and, and fear about the world. And then this is, the, that's the crazy thing about being a kid he still loves his dad. He still wants people to respect his dad. He still honors his dad. Yeah, because so Teddy's dad was fought in World War II, and he stormed the beaches in Normandy. So he was, you know, a soldier who was fighting a just war. And it's very clear <laughs> that even though this wasn't something that would have been probably talked about in the 50s, his dad came home with PTSD and really took it out on Teddy physically and emotionally psychologically like you name it Teddy has uh, has taken the brunt of all of this just all this shit that his dad brought home with him from World War II right and it's kind of fucked Teddy up pretty hard most apparent in that scene you mentioned earlier where Teddy's <laughs> playing chicken with the train <laughs> so yeah. Teddy yeah, Teddy he's, he's gonna dodge it or yeah well he's He's he says he's going to dodge it, but then he so he's standing in front of an oncoming train on the tracks, and he's kind of yelling at the train like it's nonsensical. He's like, "Hey, come do your worst. I'm not scared of you." And all of, all three of the friends are with him and like, "Get off, get off!" And then I think Chris, Chris eventually Chris grabs him. Chris grabs him and pulls him away. And it's so it's not actually clear if Teddy was going to move out of the way or not. Like this could have been a pain so deep that at least subconsciously Teddy was ready to end it. You know, Teddy's yeah. 12. Yeah. So that is an unconscionable decision to ever have to have a 12-year-old be put in. So, I mean, in a sense, Chris saves his life. And Teddy is so angry at Chris. And then it's like the anger that turns into sadness, right? He starts punching or fighting Chris because Chris pulled him out of the way of the train. And then it finishes with teddy in tears about it right because yeah. he's like ashamed of his i guess suicidal impulse even and having his friends see that and then he's weak now and it's and you're kind of and like this is a kind of an early issue like it's still like the first kind of 40 minutes of the movie so you're like, man, this kid is so messed up. Like, what is happening to him? Well, and it's interesting how they introduce him as messed up, right? Because they're like, oh, yeah, and his ear was, and his father basically burned his ear off on a stove. And you're just like, ugh. 
<laughs> and all- for some minuscule crime. Like, there's no crime a kid could do <laughs> no. that would earn obviously earn them getting their ear burned off. But it was something so minor too. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. I feel I, I agree with you. I feel a lot of sympathy for. Teddy, I feel like they don't really develop him that much, though, throughout the movie. Uh, he is definitely a secondary character. Yeah, there could be a sense of realism to that, too, though, where it's just like this kid is tragically placed through no fault of his own. He's had a terrible home life. And in a really weird way, it's like it's so hard. Like you, you, you have to blame his dad, but his dad would have seen such crazy shit too that probably so messed him up and then he even knows what his dad's life was like growing up so like that cycle is just so entrenched I guess in Teddy's life and it it well with Teddy it feels like the only reprieve he ever gets is his escapism when he actually pretends he's in World War II, right? Like, there's a bunch of scenes where Teddy pretends he himself is a soldier running around on the beaches of Normandy shooting. And it's his self-therapy to forget all of his pain is to be somewhere else, someone else, doing be something. Be a hero else, somewhere. Being a, yeah. Right? And even the, the hero worship that he seems to have for his dad un, for unknown reasons. Yeah, he's got a... I don't know. There's a scene where someone says something, and he's like, "You don't say that about my dad, or you don't talk about well, my it's dad." It's when they're standing at the at the gate after they've got out of the junkyard, right. and the junkyard guy's like mocking his dad and saying that he's just a loser and a loony, and and he just gets he gets really angry and says he's going to cut off his head and shove it down his throat or something. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't, he doesn't hold, hold back. back. No, Teddy has the most colorful language in the movie. <laughs> oh, for, for sure, sure, for sure. <laughs> but there's something kind of. At the same time, there's something like I still admire an element of Teddy where he's the go-getter, right? Like he's the when is, when they're at the trestle, ill-advised though it is, he's still the first one. Like, okay, let's go. <laughs> Come yeah, on, we gotta yeah, he's go. Like, I'm not gonna walk ten miles. Yeah, there and back. Yeah, yeah, he's just he he blazes the trail, as it were, for them first, and he's got that kind of spirit where he's not scared to go be the first person to walk into the unknown. Well, Literally I, or figurative. It's one of those things that when you've been through such traumatic things, they can make you stronger and less uh, less afraid because you're like, well, how bad can it be, right? <laughs> like I've already. It's not like walking on this trestle is going to be as bad as getting my ear burnt off. No, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it is a perspective, but I think yeah, you're right. He in the movie, it's like the movie is not about Teddy, no. so he's just an auxiliary kind of sadness, I guess. It's just kind of um, maybe more reminders of the just like how some people's lives are so much more tragic than mine. Oh, I know. <laughs> you know what I mean. Whereas, like in the in the in the moments where I come across Teddy or a Teddy in the world, it doesn't happen very often to me because I'm very fortunate in my background and the kind of life I've had. Where it's just like mad at the world you know and mad and then pathetically sad and ashamed it's that that 15 seconds of teddy with chris after chris pulls him away from the train is the perfect encapsulation angry self-righteous so so feeling like he's been wronged 
and then just crumbling into almost like self-annihilation and unworthiness and shame that he doesn't even deserve to like breathe the same air as Chris kind of thing. Yeah. That vacillation between those two so quickly is just like, it's, it's heart wrenching. It's true. I mean, I don't have uh, very many people like that in my life either. And it's, you sometimes I guess wonder, should you be seeking these people out and trying to help them more? I don't know. Like it is heartbreaking to think, and I think it happens all the time. And he has a bad end in the in the narration. What's what does it? Well, no, I, I think the I mean, it's a sad end in that it sounds like nobody really. Oh yeah, he he tried to get into the military a whole bunch of times. They <laughs> yeah. wouldn't take him because of his ear and and his eyesight, and so then he ended up in jail. And then he was like out of jail trying to find work, but couldn't find a job the last time. That so uh, he's kind of floating around. Oh, uh, yeah, parts of society that aren't really gonna help him flourish in any way right and even and it like his dream was to be in the military and they wouldn't let him do that like uh there's a a great quote i can't remember who said it right now but uh so many people uh live lives of miserable desperation there's oh silent des- yeah most so, yeah. men's lives are silent desperation yeah i think it's the leaving, leaving their song unsung right? yeah i i believe i'm pretty sure that's henry david thoreau yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, most men lead sides. Yeah, you're right. I think that's, well, <laughs> I think Teddy, I would say he leads the life of very loud, loud inspiration. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Because not... he has no problem voicing his thoughts about things. <laughs> no, he's not But being it's quiet. again, it's not actually his thoughts. It's his contrived defense mechanisms to hide how he's really just so exposed. Like, if, if he's not defending himself with all of these, like, kind of, bra- without the bravado, all of that vulnerability is showing and that eats him up alive yeah. because he hasn't no he doesn't know doesn't how to have deal way to cope with, with it yeah. yeah and i guess i just don't like have anything to say about Vern? well oh. Vern is comic relief he's there to be kind of the naive like he's really only going because he's brought the news i mean he's he's the butt of most of the jokes because he's chubby right and he's a little bit like he's slower than the rest of them and he's even though gordy's the smart one both teddy and chris have street smarts yeah and Vern has neither <laughs> he's not book smart or street smart <laughs> you know, he's just i mean he's comic book he's excitable smart. yeah he's, he's excitable. excitable so he's fun like he's he's up for stuff but yeah. he's not i think he's there for comic relief but you know i don't have much to say about yeah. Vern. <laughs> no no fair um there's that great scene in the water where they're enjoying each other's company in a bad situation and that's Real friendship when your shitty environment doesn't matter. Yeah, my my family. <laughs> All the leeches, says, right? Misery, misery makes memories, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. And then the last kind of little thing I have is that this movie is about shared experience. Yes, right. Yes. Um, the plot itself: go find a body, stand up to a bully, be a friend. It's great, but the meat and potatoes of this movie is you know the hour where they're on this literal journey together, walking along those railroad tracks and just being in the forest. And so sharing experiences with bonds, find ways to find experiences. And it reminded me of the line from Into the Wild, where uh, that poor guy at the end wrote, happiness is best shared. Yeah, yeah. And they do, like, this is a super meaningful experience to the four of them that they've shared with each other. And yeah, I just was kind of like, oh, man, no, like, this would not, none of this would have been 
worth doing if any of them just wanted to go find his body by themselves. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> it's an extremely boring movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Without well, the four of them together. Very boring, but also it's I think look for those shared experiences, right? I think that's what I try to do in my life. Seek them out. Seek out experiences with people that I care about that we can share together. Yeah. That's definitely the meta commentary of the movie is shared experiences and just comforting those experiencing tragedy versus adding to it and trying to figure out the best ways to do that for that specific individual. I mean, this is something that I think kind of comes naturally to me. I don't know if you know about strength finders, but I have individualization in my top five strength finders. So like I look for the things that are important to the particular person I'm talking to and try to accentuate those, which is totally what Chris does for Gordy. And that being such a deep component of friendship and trying to figure out how to help Teddy. That to me, that's the mystery of this movie is how to help Teddy, how to help someone like Teddy. Is there like, is there any really thing that they are able to do that kind of gets through to him at any point in the movie? Maybe just being there as his friend, which I think is the, Actually, in my opinion, when I watched the movie, the tragedy of the movie is that none of them remain friends for the rest of their lives. Yeah, like, that's true, right? Like, it's just kind of sad. It's yeah, like, it's like, oh, oh man, it's a great time. We never saw each other again. <laughs> well, like, what? he says, like, they started to, like, n- even in high school and junior high, they, they kind of just, there were f- other faces in the halls. And I'm like, man, you have this profound, cool experience with these people and you just... You're just like, eh. <laughs> Maybe that was the horror component of Stephen King, <laughs> yeah, where yeah. it's like the most horrific part of it is the uh, slow deterioration of relationships. And that's actually, well, that's so scary because that's actually what happens. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't not, have to, though. That's, the, that's a real monster. Yeah. That is a real <laughs> monster you got to fight. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, do you have any final thoughts on this movie? I think, I mean... My personal. Can you see why I wanted to do it? Yes. Oh, yes. I think. Okay. This is what I'd say. My, the chief joy of my life has been my friendships and the people in my life that have given me moments like this, whether it's, you know, road tripping up to the Yukon or, or floating down a river or any, any of those things that I've been had the, the pleasure of getting to experience with other people. And I think. What this movie shows us, I want to pull out what you said. What this movie shows us is the to have friendships like that, you need to be a friend like that. So, like for like, look for the very things. Emersonian of you. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> look for the the things in others that give you give you the opportunity to to point out and to trumpet. I love what you're saying, trumpeting the things we value most about our. Uh, that other people value most about themselves to others publicly. So like, for example, if your friend is really, really good at sports, you could, whatever that sport might be, you could say, you know, have you seen that, what this guy could do with a ball? Or, you know, if your friend is really good at writing, mm-hmm. you say, have you ever, have you read what the, what he's putting down? Have you seen this person play guitar? Yeah. Have you seen this person play piano? Like, it's just like Mozart would blush. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Revel in the people you loves loves because at least in my experience doing that for my friends and having my friends do that for me has been the most meaningful aspect of my life. And 
I think also this movie shows that like family doesn't have to be that for you in your life. It can be your friends. Now I think both you and I are blessed enough to have family that, that, that that's the case. And that's not taking Gordy's parents off the hook. No. They are still very much on the hook for oh, the way they treat him in this movie. 100%. But, like, but yes, you're right. where Chris says, you know, I wish I was your dad, right? I wish I could be that, that rock in your life to protect you from yourself in some ways. And if you don't have a good family or if your family members are treating you that way, I think most people realize this, but just to reiterate... You can make your own. Yeah. And uh, thank God for Chris. Chris saves Gordy. Yeah. Like he's just, there's, Gordy would not psychologically and emotionally survive this little season of his life if it weren't for Chris. You know? So thank God for Chris. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And I'm David Parker. Have a great time. <laughs> Goodbye. Stand by me. Uh. Nobody knows. I'm going to just start leading. <laughs> when the night oh, is it, young, uh, maybe. <laughs> and the land is free. Won't you stand? Won't, won't you stand? Stand, stand by, by me. <laughs> so darling, darling, stand <laughs> by me. All right, nailed it. <laughs> Sweet dreams, everyone. (laughs) 